folks. So uh, like we mentioned last week, you know, we had to cut this episode into two because it was so long and there was so much to cover. So um, this starts our second half of part two. So part 2.5, if you will. Right. Does that make sense? That works for me. I would have made it a uh, part 2.2, but that's me. You know I don't know. Very, we can don't find from the children. Okay. Sounds good. Let's get, let's get this conversation going. Yeah. Okay. Here we go. We're talking about whiteness. Uh, we're talking about an abstract concept that has come to influence so much of our lives. Um, right. It determines, uh, it determines in some level who we can associate with. So like there is a, uh, phenomenon uh, it's not at all unusual. It happens in a lot of cultures, but particularly when we talk about whiteness, uh, for example, uh, white women who choose to have relationships, romantic relationships with people who are not white and whiteness as a regulatory force ostracizes them. Right. I heard it all uh, growing up in uh, where I live in the South uh, of boys who, that I went to high school with who are white boys who would not date a white woman who was involved at any point with a black man. Right. Mm-hmm. Or with a Mexican man or anything like that. That was once mm-hmm. that happened off limits. And that's one way in which whiteness operates as a sort of socially regulating power. Right. Right. Because once you associate with the other. Whoever the other happens to be, well, now you're no longer as white as you could have been, right? Right. Or as you should have been, because often there are should statements tied up in these um, ideological arguments from the people who subscribe to these ideas, right? So, and it's not just, we talk about in the United States, we can also talk about it in terms of like uh, Latin America and things like that, because there are absolutely, you know, racial sensitivities and a hierarchy there, but that. That gets into its own thing. I just want to keep this focused on the American context for the moment. Well, I think I think that's a really good good clarification to make, though, because we're not talking about how r- the racial construct is m- mobilized throughout the world, right? We're talking about a very specific United States of America racial system, right? That and and how it's evolved over time and how we currently deal with it today mm-hmm. and and i mean that's that's why oftentimes it's so easy for people to try and dismiss these discussions about race in the united states by referencing people outside of the united states and saying well look india has its own colorism problem like mm-hmm. look people sure. you know, like why why are we pointing at uh, the United States when, you know, other people mm. are doing terrible things to other people outside, right? Like, uh, of course, those things happen. And of course, those things have influence uh, because, uh, you know, we, we live in a global society. But nonetheless, the United States has a very unique system mm. and it has weight. People's lives are affected by it. Mm. And if we don't talk about it, well, what are we allowing to just continue? That reminds me of two things. One, didn't you tell me about a Bollywood movie where a female character had some sort of transformation and she literally became whiter? Oh, yeah. Oh, man. That was a heavy (laughs) scene. Sheesh. Yeah, there's uh, Bahubali. It's on Netflix. It's two parts. It's like six hours of your life. You'll never get back. And um, it's, it's a trip, man. That is... That is wild. You, you don't have to watch more than the first hour and a half of the first film. <laughs> that sounds terrible, but uh, you'll get the scene. I think it within the first 45 minutes of the film. Uh, yeah, our lead female character who who is constructed, who is made to be this like warrior woman who is in charge of uh, a small army and she's 
she's empowered and she has a righteous cause and she's doing all these really amazing things highly accomplished woman um and then our male lead comes in and falls in love with her at first sight and decides he's going to this is unacceptable she doesn't know who she really is and uh so she goes and he he teaches her that she's a woman and he she needs to behave like a woman and uh pretties her up basically washes her her darker skin tone off and she becomes lighter skinned and all of a sudden she realizes after seeing her reflection uh she realizes oh this is who i've i've this is who i'm supposed to be. it's wow that's that's wow. amazing that and is... she never she never does anything violent for the rest of the the film, which is like another four and a half hours. <laughs> another four and a half hours. Yeah, it's it is wild. That's that that is wild. Oh, um, so so yeah. Uh, I'm sorry, I just, that came to mind. I just had to bring that up. But the second is when you ask, like, well, where does the idea of, of whiteness come from? How do we have it so uniquely in the United States? Um, it reminds me of a quote. I think it was from a history professor that I knew who said that the American Revolution was less of a revolution and more of a reformation uh, because mm-hmm. they sought to preserve so much of what they were fighting against, uh, which was a very much hierarchical based system that was not very democratic in its origin. Mm-hmm. Uh, early, you know, the early iteration of the Constitution uh, allowed for as much like consolidation of power as, as possible. It was, yes, more democratic than others, but things like you could not vote uh, if you did not own property and you were not white, which excludes a fair amount of people, right? Yeah. Um, senators were, not, were originally appointed by state governments, not um, elected. Right. Mm-hmm. And so that was a matter of, you know, again, the consolidation of power. And so when we talk about, you know, the whiteness in the United States, a lot of this comes down, this, a lot of this comes down historically. It's also propped up by other components like ours, uh, social institutions, higher education, yeah. our media, print journalism, things like that, that have. Con- it's complicated and integrated mm-hmm. quite a bit. Right. Absolutely. And if you want to understand this in a much longer form detail, I very highly recommend uh, the podcast seen on radio, specifically yeah. season two which is there each season is its own sort of standalone thing and season two deals with the issue of seeing whiteness and where does whiteness come yeah. from and so they do a great deep dive on it um it's a really fantastic one right. i mean if 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 anyone wants to really spend a whole lot of time pointing out the flaws of other other cultures and other uh you know societies outside of the united states in terms of race and color and and all and ethnicity and so on i mean like Taking India for an example, if you want to support the the liberation of Dalits in 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 India, like by all means, please. Yes. Like I'm sure. I, I mean, be careful about how you go about that support. But my goodness, like that that is a cause worth fighting for, absolutely. Mm. But like, this is also a cause worth fighting yes. for, and and worth worth trying to to mm-hmm. to improve, right? Right. So, and this will be the last point before we move on to, to the issue of privilege. Um, but thinking, actually, it would be a good segue. Um, one of the ways that aligning yourself with normalcy will help you advance is the idea of names and job applications. So there have been several studies that have found that. Uh, two individuals who apply for the same job where one has a white sounding name and the other has a uh, black sounding name as understood within the United States. Um, even when they have the same resume, the same qualifications, and there have been several studies that have replicated this, mm-hmm. the white sounding name is between, depending on the study, like one and a half to as much as like two and a half times more likely to get a mm-hmm. callback uh, for a job application than the person with the black sounding name. 
right? Mm-hmm. And, that, and that is because when you are not a part of the center, when you are rendered visible, whereas people who are white may be considered mundane, ordinary, and therefore invisible in that sense, uh, when you are rendered visible, you are then con- uh, considered potentially a threat or foreign mm-hmm. or somehow an unknown quantity. Right or, or less difficult familiar. or right. a hassle, yeah, yeah, all of those things. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and there's you know, and there is a lot to be said for a name. I mean, when I you know uh, saw Barry's name on a uh, email thread for the first time, I thought, oh, that he's black. He was not. He's very much not black. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, or you know, Gabriel Cruz. People, I did not know that. No, That's, no. <laughs> yeah. Uh, or like my name, for example, uh, you know, is. Uh, Gabriel Arnaldo Cruz and wait shit can we cut out that middle part don't don't leave my middle name (laughs) no but really and truly like that has a certain sounding name I have uh, people have uh, intimated that perhaps they thought I might seem a little I don't know darker skinned or more Mexican than I am like Mm. you know that kind of thing so names very much are an expression of that sort of racial ethnic identity Um, so yeah uh, anyway, so that gets us to this idea of privilege. And so when we talk about privilege, um, it is a sort of complicated issue, but it, a lot of it boils down to what I like to think of in terms of percentages and probabilities. Because when we think about privilege, a lot of folks frame it as like a on or off switch, like either you have it or you don't. And that's yeah, yeah. not exactly how that operates, right? No. Um, so I'll give you an example. I... For those who don't know what I look like, and you can check out my Instagram or my TikTok uh, if you want to get an idea for my appearance. Um, so I'm light-skinned. Uh, I am the same sort of like olive to brown color year-round, basically, although I do get darker in the summer. Um, but I can – my speech is very much you know a, a southern dialect from the Tidewater South um, and that kind of thing. And so depending on what I – uh, how I look that day, how I choose to comb my hair, or if I've gotten a tan, folks interpret me differently. Some people will see me as, or I like to joke that I'm a bit of a Rorschach test, right? Some mm-hmm. people will see me as um, a, I've gotten Middle Eastern before quite a few times. Uh, I've gotten Pacific Islander, particularly when I had really long hair, uh, and I was clean shaven, Native American quite often, which is, uh, there's some truth to that. Uh, mm-hmm. I do come from indigenous Mexicans um, on my father's side. Uh, or sometimes, you know, new white guy they just haven't seen before, right? <laughs> so, so a new type, a new make and model, if you will. Um, so when I get pulled over, when I have interactions with authority, oh, and by the way, those are things that people have said to me. I want to point out like those are not just like guesses or anything. These are things that folks have said to me in real time and space. Yeah. So like when I um, go and get pulled over by the police uh, that I'm light skinned means that I have a, there's a probability depending on a number of factors. Like I said, my own appearance that day, how I sound, whether or not this individual has uh, a lot of experience with Latinos who look like me because other Latinos tend to know, right? Other, sure. uh, other like Mexicans tend to, oh, okay, yeah, him. No, we know him, right? <laughs> um, yeah. But uh, depending on the officer's point of reference, uh, when I get pulled over, it, it is largely going to shape what happens next. So mm. I have, you know, light skin privilege, but it might help me. It might not, Right. Uh, because however light-skinned I am, if that officer reads me as a Mexican, in particular in my neck of the woods, where um, there is a lot of, uh, if you're not familiar, so like in North Carolina, 
one example of this would be how the Alamance County Sheriff's Department has been under investigation and was found to be guilty by the Department of Justice of you know racially profiling Latinos. Um, mm -hmm. That may not go well for me, right? Or it might come out harsher than uh, normal. Otherwise, uh, it's entirely possible that uh, I might be let uh, I might be let off with a warning because I appeared white enough, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not exactly mm -hmm. a switch that we can turn on or off. Right, 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 right. Yeah, context always matters, but um, in terms of uh, privilege, like uh, the, the the resounding arguments that I, I'm always confronted with, and and in in the past I have uh, also uh, raised is like, well, you know, again, it's that whole like, well, I don't I don't enjoy the privileges that some some white people get, so clearly like. Mm -hmm. Hey, clearly I'm not I'm not receiving this white privilege that y'all are talking about, right? And and it's like, well, no, it's it's a matter of degrees. It's a matter of like you say, prob probability. And, like, mm -hmm. there's always going to be uh, minor exceptions, but yeah. that the the significance of all of this is is in regards to how often and the scale at which these privileges are applied or not applied in, oh, yeah. in different contexts and who who gets those privileges more consistently than others oh yeah and uh i refer to it as the uh wheel of ass whoopings if you will um <laughs> so what are the what's the likelihood that this system of power whatever it happens to be is just going to hand me my own ass right uh <laughs> <laughs> you talk about where where you live and how how it's applied in, um or, or how privilege is exemplified there like um just here where I, I live, I, I learned that uh, black residents typically uh, pay about, uh, what was the, the figure, 6 to 12 percent more mm -hmm. uh, for a home than their white counterparts. Yeah. And um, like, wh why is that? You know, there's a number of reasons we can get into the complexity of it, uh, but nonetheless, the, the racial component is the clear differentiator between... Yeah how much money someone has to pay or, or, or pay into to have the status of a homeowner. Yeah. Right. And, um, that, that it, it has less to do with some nefarious, uh, mustache twirling bad guy going, ma ha ha ha, I'm going to get those black people. And it has more to do with this system that we live in that privileges some people over others in a million minor ways and a, a few really big significant ways that all adds up in the end. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I want to be clear about something. Um, when we talk about this from a systemic perspective, we have to take out the idea of the sort of mustache twirling villain, right? Because that's not really how this operates. You have bigots everywhere. Absolutely. And when they have access to power, they can enact systemic, uh, they can enact uh, racism from their institutional perspective. Right. Um, but like, I use the example of, uh, of law enforcement. Um, I've known good cops. I've known bad cops. Um, as an institution, whether or not they're good or bad has little bearing on the fact that in the execution of their duties, they may be reproducing racist outcomes, right? Mm -hmm. There are a lot mm -hmm. of, uh, there was a study that found recently that um, uh, white police officers and black police officers are just as likely to fire uh, to, to, you know, shoot 
or discharge their weapons uh, on civilians, right? During, while trying to arrest or something like that. And mm -hmm. so the idea that like, well, if uh, a white person is much more racist, therefore they're more likely to do these things. Mm, not really. Turns out a lot of it has to do with the sort of institutional position and how were they trained from that position to react to the rest of society. Right. Mm -hmm, so, mm -hmm. so what I say that is that there's a lot that goes into this and, and going back to my example of like the, the wheel of ass whoopings, um, going in for a bank loan or something like that. Right. You spin that wheel and there's a, uh, there's like a, in my head, it's like a pie chart of probabilities. And one of those is like, get a fair rate uh, for, yeah. uh, for having to take out the loan. Uh, and then others are going to be like disproportionate or disproportionately high, or even being rejected entirely, something along those lines. And it, it depends on a variety of different factors, but the idea, is the closer to normal you can be, the more privileges you have, right? right, uh, right and right. and privilege is just so we can operationalize that term and be clear. Privilege is a unearned benefit. Okay, we're not talking about like if you you know did your sixty hours a week and now you have a good life and the benefits that come with that. No, 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 that's that's stuff that you earn. But the unearned benefits, for example, we're both college educators, right? Right. You're a uh, tenure track professor. I'm a lecturer. Uh, but we, when we st uh, say to people that we're professors or educators at the college level, yes, we have access to the benefits that came from the hard work that went into getting those degrees and those positions. But the social uh, credibility that comes from that is unearned. Right. Mm -hmm. The yeah. the amount that people are willing to listen to us, even when they probably shouldn't, like the folks listening to this podcast, uh, even you know that amount, that uh, disproportionate weight behind our words is not something that we earned. It's a matter of the social consequence of having that positionality. Yep. So give give me the bullet points of the tenets of critical race theory that we've covered so far. So so far we've talked about how you know we touch back on the idea that race is a social construct with material right. consequences, right? We talk about whiteness and how whiteness is the sort of dominant norm in American society uh, that has roots in um, historical, legal, uh, social, and media uh, institutions um, yeah. that then regulate society in both how we work on the micro level as well as on sort of larger scale things. We then connect that to the more that we align with whiteness, the more privileges we have, right? Which also gets into this next point, and that is intersectionality and doubles back on that or goes back to that idea that we talked about with like Appalachian folk who are white, who grow up poor and that kind of thing. If you grow up poor, what privileges do you have? As uh, uh, yeah, as my grandmother put it, uh, you know, she grew up, you know, dirt poor, um, you know, and the kind of dirt poor where like good dirt is a luxury of a sport, yeah. right? Uh, so what privileges do they have? Um, so by virtue of being white in a majority white environment means that mm -hmm. if you have to go to a grocery store or if you have to go to a bank, you are more likely, not guaranteed, let's be clear. You're not guaranteed, but you're more likely to have access to those institutions uh, because of your skin. You can mm -hmm. still be poor and benefit from the uh, privilege of having white skin at the same time. That white privilege may not keep you uh, from starving. It may not help you get access to clean running water. Right. Uh, but it can help you in social situations that will get you access to those things, right? To food, uh, to resources and what have you. And so intersectionality is the idea that race looks different for everybody based off of a variety of factors, including, mm -hmm. including but not limited to age, uh, ethnic identity, gender, sexual orientation, disability, religious practice, and a whole slew of other considerations as well.
right? Right. So what it means to be uh, white and be a white American male in the working class is different than what it means to be a white American male in the middle class or upper class. Right, those kinds of things. This reminds me of the John Punch story, yeah. right? That that you told last week about how uh, John Punch and his white counterparts who tried to escape indentured servitude, they were all indentured servants. Like they were, they were not enjoying a a, a very oh, yeah. uh, privileged lifestyle, mm -hmm. right? All of them were were living a pretty sucky uh, life, mm -hmm. and that's what they were trying to run from. Mm -hmm. But when they got caught. And the authoritative, authoritative, authoritative structures were enacted on them. Uh, the that structure was not uh, uh, applying what it saw as justice in the same way, right? Right. And so nobody got freed from indentured servitude, but some people got to later enjoy freedom from that indentured servitude differently sure. or, or at all compared to John Punch, who never got that freedom ever again, right? Absolutely. I was going to say, in a modern parallel to that is uh, the U.S. Sentencing Commission found that a analysis of uh, people who are incarcerated and sentenced given the same criminal history for the same crimes, uh, but mm. broken down along the lines of gender and race, uh, Black men receive prison sentences that are 19.1% longer than yeah. their white male counterparts who do the exact same things, even with the same criminal history, right? Right. And so, and that same as bail, bail is applied differently across racial lines. And absolutely. So, yeah. so, in those instances, being white didn't keep these men out of jail, but it did right. mean that they did not have to serve prison sentences that were like almost 20% longer, right? right. So it's kind of like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, you see the same thing. Uh, I, I spent some time in South Africa, and um, you, you see interesting ways in which this is applied uh, differently, but uh, the same power dynamics are at play uh, with uh, the, the um, xenophobia, right? And so you have, uh, and, and xenophobia is often operationalized to uh, keep people kind of, enjoying their their um <laughs> their sucky situations uh yeah. right so like uh, a weird situation in south africa when i was there was that um immigration like uh people people from like malawi uh zimbabwe and even Niger as far as nigeria were were immigrating to south africa because it was an economic hub of the continent and um you know uh, often but not always men uh immigrating there to work and and so they would take up jobs and oftentimes these jobs were uh high labor low wages and so on and um often working for the white middle and upper class uh members of south african society and um white people i i would talk to them all the time and they would uh, their running commentary was man south african black people are just so lazy they are not willing to work uh as hard and so like i'm forced to just have my gardener be this uh malawian um because he's willing to work hard sure. he does a really good job he and and they're ignoring the entire side of how um precarious this uh, malawian man's life is that sure. of course he's gonna work hard of course he's gonna try and please uh, please you in, in, because he's more desperate like he's mm -hmm. in a really weird spot he's uh you know he's 
trying to avoid immigration authorities. He's trying to make sure that he has a job where he can send money home to his family and so on. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, he is he is extra diligent. And um, he also hasn't dealt with the long uh, multi-generational history mm -hmm. that uh, South African blacks have had to deal with in the country. He has his own history he has to deal with of oppression found in his own country. Right. And so that 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 running commentary creates a resentment amongst uh, uh, South African blacks and, uh, uh, for lack of a better term, foreign-born blacks. And so they end up clashing with each other. And, and you have this, this clash amongst each other where they're fighting with each other rather than fighting with those in power right. to actually like try and do something about it, right? Or, or lobby to the, the government to improve the situation. And uh, it, it becomes rather convenient for those in power or those in privileged statuses to be able to sit there and, and uh, see them squabbling amongst each other and, and pick out who they want to, to work for them in different ways, right? And that is a important reason for why it's important to have an intersectional approach to a lot of this stuff, because that note of solidarity, because a intersectional mm -hmm. analysis of what it means to have a certain racial identity, when you consider things like economic class, uh, occupation, education level, things like that, reveal that there are a lot of commonalities between uh, multiple oppressed categories, uh, much more so often than those who would benefit from these systems. Um, and on that note of things like oppressed versus oppressor, one of the common critiques that you hear, uh, and I could hear that, I could sort of in my mind see this playing out because South Africa is often used to sort of hold up this argument that, well, if you have, um, uh, if you have oppressed and oppressors, then uh, critical race theory and other Marxist ideas, uh, again, from this perspective of someone who's a detractor, must argue that you know you have to uh, overthrow the oppressed, overthrow the oppressor, so that the oppressed then becomes in charge, right? And it's not quite that clear cut, actually. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. We all exist in various degrees of oppression, uh, whether we benefit from systems or we are subjugated by them. Um, the examples I like to use are uh, in the United States, for example. Um, there is a lot of uh, there's some enmity between like Mexicans, uh, Mexican Americans, and uh, Black Americans. Whether we're talking about African Americans or folks from other uh, um, predominantly uh, Black uh, countries, and part of that has to do with the anti-Blackness inherent in the um, in the Mexican community because there is a lot of anti-Blackness, unfortunately. Uh, and part of it has to do with this sort of approach that well, Mexicans are coming here to steal jobs from Americans and in particular Black folk, right? That's mm -hmm, a mm -hmm. common propaganda line. Um, when really a intersectional approach that looks at you know the things like uh, wage gaps, the uh, the not making much money, the exploitation, things like that would should and has in the past. Um, in moments aligned, you know, the African-American and the black American community with uh, other Latino communities, right? When there are mm -hmm. areas of overlap and solidarity because of common struggles. Um, right. I'm sorry, but in this idea of like, there's no such thing as a clear, fixed, oppressed and oppressor because we all benefit and we all subjugate others to various degrees. One example of that would be like Vietnam, for example, right? Which was referred to as the black man's war because black folk were disproportionately drafted into uh, the war because they had not have the access, they did not have the access to things like a college uh, education that could allow for a deferral, things like that. They didn't have, you know, uh, rich parents who could, you know, bribe a doctor to say that they had bone spurs, <clears throat> that sort of thing, right? Uh -huh. 
So, <laughs> so what have you. Um, so then you have, you know, a lot of black folk and a lot of, a lot of poor white uh, folk as well, but a lot of black folk being sent overseas to go oppress other people overseas, right? As a part right. of a colonial project. Uh, the war in Vietnam was to protect French French national colonial interests and to establish American colonial interests there as well. Um, so in that case, those who were, you know, being oppressed by the draft were also oppressing other people. And mm -hmm. so, and that's a common theme when we find issues or when we look at issues of like empire and colonialism. Yeah, we're all like, you can be simultaneously victimized by a system and then victimize other people in turn, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And on that note, we could also look at how even people at the top of this hierarchy, we might say of like uh, uh, a racist patriarchy that upholds white supremacy or, or, or white masculine ideals, even the people at the top from an intersectional perspective are being oppressed. The difference is instead of it being by folks who are above them, it's by themselves because privilege is its own form of oppression. If you are privileged, like we said before, you are aligning with a sort of sense of normalcy, right? A sense of, uh, you know, what it is to be the sort of center and invisible. But if you deviate from that, then you are, potentially ostracizing yourself, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So if you are a, archetypally speaking, a white, upper-class, heterosexual male, you can only operate in the ways that are consistent with that without facing repercussions. Right. Not that you right. face... The, pre the, mm -hmm. the pressure that you face to maintain that status yeah. is its own um, cushy birdcage in itself. I had a student uh, who was in my office, uh, white, upper middle class, male, heterosexual, uh, all that sort of stuff. Uh, and he was lamenting his mental health and his, in a, his uh, the mental illnesses that he was struggling with. And a lot of that was rooted in the fact that he was not able to express his, or reach out for mental health because of the image that he had to be a man. Right. Mm -hmm. He had to be masculine and he had to do these things that men do, which is keep it bottled up. And the other thing is that he had talked about how he was not he was actively discouraged from engaging in things that he would like to have done. Things that were artistic, things that were creative, things that were, you know, involved in the arts, broadly speaking, because of the stigma that it wasn't manly to do those things. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. That he would be uh, labeled as gay or something like that if he were to you know, do theater or, uh, you know, study poetry or do art or things like that. Right. That is how these systems operate through intense self-regulation that is ultimately destructive. Right. So. Right. Yeah. It, it affects everybody from top to bottom. Absolutely. Right. Um, right. It doesn't affect everyone in the same ways. No. And and privilege certainly is is part of the injustice of all of this, but nonetheless, yeah, uh, the the whole system sucks. It does, and it's also everyone suffers in a, some in some way, even if they don't recognize it. Absolutely, and it's also worth noting some important qualitative differences, right? Like uh, the the social stigma of engaging in a particular recreational activity is not the same as facing houselessness. Is not the same as not having right. access to medical care. Absolutely, right. uh, it's not like we should spend you know. <laughs> 
all of our time uh, saying, poor you, poor, right. poor, poor rich person who really has to suffer from dealing with the loneliness of swimming in your own pools of money, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's really hard. You know how hard it is to do a breaststroke in a pool full of silver dollars? It's very difficult. Yeah. I mean, oh. I Scrooge McDuck, man, he's, yeah. he's got some serious challenges that he has to face with swimming through piles of Literal golden gold. coins. Yeah. Yeah. So, and it's also <laughs> worth noting that people in those positions often have access to the resources that help to mitigate those harmful effects, right? You can access therapy, right. things like that. I'm not discounting any of that. I'm just saying that the systems that we have do harm to all of us to varying degrees. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. So excellent. And that's the goal of critical race theory is to expose those systems and to work towards a more liberated and more um, equitable society and system. So, yeah. All right. We've gone on for a while. So a little bit long, a little bit long. Uh, in part three, we'll talk about what this means in terms of media. Right. Uh, and uh, yeah. Yeah. The reason we're all here. Yeah. The point of this podcast, if we're being honest. So, yep. <laughs> all right. All right, folks. Well, I mean, uh, like circle back around to the beginning. The point of this podcast is to figure out what works and what is what is good and back it off just a little. That's just true. Don't don't get right. on. Yeah. No, not not quite right. I feel like we have come just shy of the standard of quality. Um, that one might reasonably expect from a podcast. So, yeah, I'm good with that. And that's the sweet spot. Yeah, it is. <laughs> All right, folks. Uh, thanks for uh, dropping by the office hours, and uh, we hope to see you next week.